The following show is an encore presentation of With Good Reason. 2020 has been an isolating year. Many of us have steered clear of other people, stayed away from loved ones and from strangers. But this isolation, this distance, is not a new problem for us humans. In fact, it's the problem we all have in common. We never really know, however much we may want to, what is happening for another person within. We don't have any way of knowing how they feel, what they think, and it's a profoundly difficult fact about being human that we can't traverse that gulf, even though we would like to. Even with people with whom we are most intimate that we've known for years, our own children, our parents, our siblings, our partners. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, we hear from poets and a playwright trying to bring us a bit closer to each other to know a little bit more about what's going on inside someone else's head. My first guest is Julie Phillips Brown. She's an English professor at Virginia Military Institute and a poet. We spoke about the challenges and rewards of human connection, from motherhood to water sports. Julie, what brought you to poetry? What first led you to start writing poems? I think that for me, poetry started at a very young age. I always had a belief in the power of poetry, the power of language, that there was something magical about it. I think I was about maybe 10 years old, and uh, my father had a law office that was next to our town's library. And I would go to the library after school, and that was sometimes... um, Uh, equivalent to my daycare. I would go to the library. And somehow it came into my head that if you wanted a prayer to be answered, not only did you have to write it down, but you had to put it into as many languages as possible um, so that it would take root, so that as many ears as possible would hear it. And so I would write down a prayer. And poems, I think, are very close to prayer. And so I would go to the shelves in the reference section and pull down Russian dictionaries and Greek dictionaries, Latin, French, Spanish, as many languages as, you know, the small library held. And word by word, I would make a kind of hodgepodge collage out of the original prayer into all of these different languages. And so in some ways, my first sense of poetry came from an act of translation, You know, this idea of, you know, trying to concretize a wish, a fervent wish, into a universal language. And so that was my my first attempt at poetry. My second attempt was actually also connected with that library. They ran a contest. um, And I think I was about the same age, maybe 10 or 11. And I wrote a poem about um, holding a stone in your hand and how that was like holding the solid form of time, you know, geological time wrapped up in a human hand. And it placed second. And I thought, well, okay, maybe I can do this. (laughs) There is a poem, a book-length poem, that you have written called The Adjacent Possible. And I want to talk to you a little bit about what the title means and what you're trying to get out in the poems throughout this collection. So The Adjacent Possible is a manuscript that I first started writing when I was in Ithaca, um, completing my uh, Master's of Fine Arts. The book is, as you mentioned, a book-length sequence. It features hybrid Japanese forms, tonka, renga, haibun. Um, These are all syllabic forms of poetry. You count the syllables. Um, And the book deals with problems of consciousness, our relationship with the environment, and uh, what I call intersubjective difference, which is the idea that we never really know, however much we may want to, what is happening for another person within. We don't have any way of knowing how they feel, what they think, and it's a profoundly difficult fact about being human that we can't traverse that gulf even though we would like to, even with people with whom we are most intimate that we've known for years, our own children, our parents, our siblings, 
our partners. And so the book is about that problem that we all have in common, simply by virtue of being human. And so the book is also about the signals that we send out of a place of optimism and the ways that possibly those signals are returned, received, welcomed. The poems are untitled, so this is just one section uh, of the book-length poem. But it talks about a moment um, when I was in Ithaca and writing from direct observation. So these are poems that I'm writing as I'm there in the moment, um, and that's why they're in present tense. They are directly observed. And I was on the bank of an inlet in Ithaca, and I was watching the crew team roll by, and I was thinking about how it is, how it's possible that we communicate enough in order to make progress, enough in order to make a difference. And so that's what this poem covers a little bit. Some ones roll over the water now. Their arms make a line of herringbone angles. Each oar pierces the water, sweeps flustered mallards to either side. One sits astride the stern, calls to each of the others how to move their limbs, their bodies, how breathe, how skim. This is how one moves a craft. Arms advance forward, backward, however, together. And so in this part of the poem, I'm really thinking about the fact that even though we can't know what's happening for each of us inside the consciousness, there are still outwardly observable signs, right, that we can work together. There are feedback loops, there are exchanges, there are signs of mutuality and togetherness. And I find a lot of hope in that, the idea that we can still work together even in the face of uncertainty. It's interesting that you're talking about this and this desire to hail each other across the distance at a time of the pandemic, <laughs> when we've all suddenly found ourselves like musical chairs, stopped wherever we were when the pandemic struck, and trying to make sense of our relationships. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, for me, one hallmark of the pandemic has been, you know, that, that time moves differently. People will joke, you know, what even is a day? And so when time slows down like that or moves differently, I do think it allows us to examine our relationships with ourselves and with those around us, those we love, those we cherish. Um, things become clarified. At the same time, some things become fuzzier. You know, there, there are also things that become more confusing. I think as a result of this situation, as we move into, you know, the unknown, it's been very important for me to find people in other ways. And so uh, the friends that I used to write with in person, now we write together on Zoom. So just knowing that you were sitting together with a like-minded soul who loved poetry as much as you do meant the world. You said finding a writing partner was like a gym partner, but with croissants. Yes, exactly. <laughs> You have a wonderful piece called Chimera that really addresses and celebrates another kind of intimate connection with another life. Tell me about Chimera, and if you don't mind, would you read that for us? So Chimera uh, is a book that I'm working on currently. Um, it's a book about motherhood and also a phenomenon called um, fetomaternal microchimerism, which I will explain. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a mouthful. Um, but it's the phenomena whereby a baby's cells escape, they travel through the mother's bloodstream, and then they lodge in her body so that anyone um, who is born a baby has this hybrid DNA in their bodies, at least for a time. And so many of us are walking around on this planet and we are chimera. And after I discovered this, and I, and I knew this because when I had my son, you know, we had done some blood tests when I, and found his DNA. That's how I knew that I was having a boy. After I discovered this, I just thought, what am I? <laughs> you know, 
my right. my DNA is not entirely my own anymore. My body is not entirely my own anymore. And what does that mean then for me and for him? Um, so these poems examine what it is to be a mother, what sort of connections exist with a child. And, um, and also uh, in this poem I'm about to read, there's an idea that with motherhood, there's always an unfair playing field. The love develops first for the mother so that she always has a head start on the child. <laughs> the mother has always loved the child longer than the child loves the mother. So this poem is called When You Are Three, and it's after Amy Nazuka Matadal, another poet who has written uh, a poem of the same title. When You Are Three, Lexington, Virginia. I find my copy of the very persistent gappers of Fripp, which the author has signed and made out to future baby, a child I don't remember desiring all those years ago, but somehow must have confessed and asked for even then. Now you're in the kitchen, circling your yellow metal dump truck as you count by thousands over and over. Some afternoons, we make a painting together, like this one, a thunderstorm, a scraffito, yours, and undulant, watery blooms, mine. At three, you charge and flee waves in the shallows, the same shoreline I limbed at your age. You are three, and you sleep like driftwood, salted and laid out by years of tide and sun. When you are still not quite three, I ask you, where were you then? Where were you when you were a little baby? And you tell me, someone has told you, in your belly. I ask you, what were you doing in there? Dancing, you tell me. You are three, and I wonder how you remember that dance, your fingers curled around the cord, like your fingers clasping mine now as we lie side by side in bed. You are only just three when you turn to me and ask, are you my love bug? Yes, I tell you. Are you my love bug too? You are three, so what I mean to say is, yes, I have loved you for many years, many more years than you know. And that poem was for my son, Aiden. And when I first published it, I told Aiden, uh, mommy has written a poem about you. Would you like to read it? And Aiden said, no. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> How old is Aiden now? He's five. <laughs> when I reread this poem, when I revisit it, um, it reminds me that uh, this did happen. Um, this is The Very Persistent Gappers of Fripp is a book, a children's book written by George Saunders. And uh, I had met him years ago in Walla Walla, Washington. I bought this book and apparently I had had him dedicate it to future baby, even though <laughs> I never thought I wanted children. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was a very funny thing to find that book again, open it, and have no memory of having it made out to Future Baby. And yet here was Future Baby in my kitchen. <laughs> Let me go back for a moment to your poem, The Adjacent Possible, where you are really trying to get at how do we communicate with one another? Do you ever think about that in the context of the recent election? The the vast numbers of people in the U.S. who are on one side or another, and how hard it is to bridge the gulf of true understanding there? Mm -hmm. Yes, I think that you know, we find ourselves um, at a moment of extraordinary polarization. And a lot of that, of course, comes from, you know, the difficulty that inheres in being human of trying to understand across that gulf that exists. And so how do we do that? You know, I increasingly have been thinking about what it means 
not to know and what we read into that space of not knowing. This is something uh, uh, another dear friend said to me. If you don't know, if you don't have information, this friend said to me, why not choose the more optimistic reading? Why not choose the more optimistic interpretation? Mm. Uh-huh. And I really had to sit and think about that for a long time because I think that, you know, there's pretty good data that suggests that humans are wired with a negative bias. It's protective, evolutionarily speaking, you know, to to think worse uh, of conditions that we don't know about. We protect ourselves. But in protecting ourselves and not being open and not being vulnerable, even to something that might be painful, we miss the opportunity for connection. We miss the opportunity for growth, for unexpected joy. Um, And so I've been practicing. I'm not (laughs) necessarily very good at it, but I have been practicing when there are moments where I don't know um, what someone might be thinking or feeling or what, you know, what might have caused something. I am trying to read into that space of unknowing something good, something positive, or hopeful. And also to remind myself that I never actually know. We never actually know. And so it's happening all the time. As many different people as there are in a room, that's how many different realities exist in that space. And I think just having a humbleness about that, um, trying to remember that, Uh, is important for getting back to a place where we begin to trust each other again. Because I think trust is key. You know, if, if you know that there is trust there, if you know that there is shared goodwill, you can forgive small trespasses. Well, Julie Phillips Brown, what a delight to speak with you. Thank you for talking with me and with good reason. Thank you so much. I am so grateful for this opportunity. Julie Phillips-Brown is a professor of English Rhetoric and Humanistic Studies at Virginia Military Institute. Her 2019 collection of poems is The Adjacent Possible. Playwright Ivan Rodden, who writes under the name Ivan Fote, uses performance to tell stories of refugees. Rodden, who is an English professor at Christopher Newport University, says the stage can bring to light intimate portraits of humans navigating the unknown. On Arriving is a one-woman play about a refugee and her harrowing experience from one place to another. Is it meant to be a particular country? And arriving in another particular country? Um, It's not exactly. There are different parts of it that are taken from different um, refugee journeys that I researched. And so she is very individual and her story is very individual. But the kind of journey she goes on, it sort of draws from a variety of different kind of uh, refugee journeys. And so it's not, it's not sort of... uh, it's not placed in time or space. Um, it's, it's kind of, uh, an amalgamation of a lot of different kinds of journeys. Um, even though she is a very individual person. What inspired you to tell the story of refugees? Um, I actually, throughout my entire life, um, been very interested in helping people settle in the United States. Um, and so I've done different work with different refugee groups. Bosnian refugees, because I lived in Chicago, um, worked during the Bosnian War. I worked with uh, some families. It was just about becoming more comfortable in American culture. So it wasn't like I was helping them find a job or anything like that. It was just hanging out with them and, you know, answering those questions that are hard to find answers for. And it was just, it was really awesome to be able to um, help someone to become an American, um, you know, that, that, that where things were new to them and to help them sort of helped me see my country in a different way. What did you notice when young Bosnians were asking you to translate weird stuff they saw in America? What did that help you realize was weird? (laughs) 
Um, I, I think just in the way that Americans um, are just open to things that that we when we meet somebody, uh, it's not uh, you know it's not what's your background, what's your religion, what's your you know give me this list of things so I can know how to think about you. But we sort of in, interact with people on an individual level, um, and just how. That's, I, you know, as an American, I just thought, yeah, you meet somebody and you kind of want to know them as a person versus you might meet someone and figure out what, you know, where, what, whether you should interact with them or not. Were they taken aback by it? Yeah, they didn't. I think one of the things that was really endearing to me was that they were surprised that people assumed they were American and they didn't understand why everyone just thought they were American, even if they had an accent. Um, and I was just, you know, it was just like, well, you know, we're all, we're from all over the place. We're not, you know, yeah. It's not like we we just have one identity. It's we have these crazy all of these identities, and you know, we just try to get along with each other. That's still true. Um, I think on a interpersonal level, um, I think if you're interpersonally interacting with people, I, I do think there's there's a lot of truth to that. Um, unfortunately the opportunities for interpersonal interaction aren't always there. So when, when it becomes a group, when it becomes a, an identity, then I don't know, it's hard to say sometimes right now. You also lived in Vietnam for a while as a teacher. I did. Did that also inform your understanding of groups of people between two different countries? Yeah, I think it opened my eyes to the admiration that Americans are seen with. I lived in Vietnam in the 90s, and I was just surprised at how excited Vietnamese people were to meet an American, to talk to me, um, to create a friendship with me. And this wasn't just young people. These were people who had been military officers during the war and things like that. And and just their excitement to sort of find the connections and be like, yeah, Americans and Vietnamese, we have a lot in common. Um, our stories have a lot in common. Our, our, the ways we look at the world has a lot in common. And I think it just sort of made me see that the American identity is something that um, carries a lot of weight and that we sort of have some responsibilities that go along with that and how we then sort of treat people in other countries when we're there or when, we, when they come here. So what are you trying to share with us from your on arriving? What do you want us to get from that? I think the the biggest thing is just that refugees are not a thing, (laughs) that refugees are people instead. And how a refugee is an individual who has an individual story and their decision to flee where they're from is not made lightly. It's not made by us. It's not a spur of the moment sort of thing. Um, it's a very, very hard choice. And that if we can sort of see that choice, if we can see refugees as individuals, um, we can also see that, that their hopes and dreams and aspirations and their lives are very similar to ours. I think someone who's a refugee who seeks out a better life, that's really what a lot of Americans are after as well. Um, and to see that humanity in them is really what I was, I was trying to get at. Um, it's easy to see groups of people, but it's hard to see a person. You also wrote about refugees in another play called Lost Sock Laundry. Yeah, it's um, that is a, a sort of a different take. So On Arriving is a very serious sort of look at things and... And Lost Sock Laundry is really just a sort of everyday slice look at what an American neighborhood is. Um, and there, there are three women from three different countries, three different waves of immigration. Um, and it's just sort of their everyday life and how they deal with their families, how they deal with their neighborhood, how they deal with the owner of the laundromat. Um, and then how they sort of build connections, how they build a community out of those just sharing, sharing everyday life. Do you have any laundromat experience? I did. Well, I lived in Chicago um, for many, <laughs> many years. Um, and I used to say when I lived in my apartment in Chicago, I said, my definition of wealth is you have a washing machine in your house. Um, <laughs> because, you know, that 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 can kind of become the way you organize your time, you organize your week is, you know, when do I go to the laundromat? How do I make sure that no one else is there that I can, you know, get through in a, in a certain amount of time? 
you know, a lot of that is, is just the drama of the laundromat is not something we, we think about, but, um, it is definitely a, a sort of a microcosm of social order. Do you have a target audience in mind, especially for this, but maybe with all your plays? I mean, I think for all of my plays, but especially Lost Sock Laundry, my, my audience, I often aim my plays for the people who don't regularly go to plays. Um, so maybe the person who gets dragged along or whose friends make them come or, you know, who's, it's just like an occasional thing. Um, because I really want my plays to, to, to hit in a place where it introduces some, some slightly new idea for a, an audience member, maybe a, a place where they have something to talk about after they see the play. So I, I'm not sort of aiming for the theater nerd necessarily, but rather someone who is going to get a different take on something, um, going to see a different sort of aspect of theater making, um, whether it's through the character or the type of play that they're they're participating in. What are you working on now? You know, I'm always working on a million things, so um, it's a complicated question. But um, really finishing up a, a script called um, The Dog Show, which is about a family in the Midwest dealing with um, a lot of family trauma and addiction. I'm also working on a series of one-act plays that I'm calling um, plays that are impossible to perform. Uh, and I'm just <laughs> basically going wild and in including things that you can't stage um, because, you know, why not write those now when staging is, is complicated? And what do you mean by plays you can't perform? Um, well, for example, one of them involves uh, an entire side of beef um, that gets carved up during the show. Um, and I, I looked at the, uh, you know, logistics of doing that and, you know, a side of beef is several thousand dollars. Um, so, you know, it would be that much expense every, every show that you put on and then just training actors to use knives and, you know, carve a piece of beef is kind of hard. So, um, I think, you know, there, there is benefit in allowing yourself to sort of think beyond what's possible at the moment. Um, in playwriting because you can discover things that you didn't you didn't realize could be done on stage. Well, Ivan Rodden, a.k.a. Ivan Fote, thank you so much for talking with me and with good reason. Thank you so much. This was a, a great conversation. Ivan Rodden is a professor of English at Christopher Newport University. His plays On Arriving and Lost Sock Laundry are published under the name Ivan Fote. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. This is an encore presentation of With Good Reason. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. As a poet, Casey Renee Lopez loves precision in language, but their work explores the messiness that is inherent in our lives and our bodies. Lopez, who teaches English at John Tyler Community College, has devoted their career to creating spaces for the poetry and experimental work of queer and trans writers. Casey Renee, why is it so important to make those spaces? It's because it's my life. Um, I am a queer person. I am from the Deep South. My husband is a transgender man. Um, we didn't have space in writing, in literature that I could access. And so I felt that by making space for queer and trans writers, I was um, not only helping myself, but helping others and um, really kind of uh, making, you know, that space. Uh, people aren't going to give it to you, so you have to take it. And so by, you know, using resources that I had at my disposal, a little bit of money, buying a, a website, it really created something that um, I personally actually never thought was going to reach as many people as it has. Um, so for me, it's, it's, it's about claiming space when it's not offered, when you don't have a seat at the table. 
You created Crab Fat Magazine after a very frustrating experience in grad school. Tell me about that. I did. Um, it was uh, pretty much awful. I was sitting in a grad classroom trying to learn about city budgets and city planning. And the professor proceeded to make very um, homophobic and transphobic comments. And my peers around me started to chime in and agree with this man and uh, kind of just like cheer him on in his disgusting, hateful rhetoric. Um I left the classroom shaking with tears in my eyes. I was so angry that I actually ended up withdrawing from the program after making a formal complaint against this professor. And um, I had no idea how to kind of um, cope or process what I had experienced in this in this place, this space that was meant to be, you know, a space that was for learning and for engaged, engaging with other people and new ideas. And so out of this sense of just absolute rage is how I started the journal Crap That Magazine. I needed a way to process this experience and to hear from other people that were like me that could um, sort of bring their own experiences in. And rather than rely on anger and, and this kind of rage that was coming out, it uh, really helped transform those negative emotions into something positive to platform other voices that uh, perhaps hadn't been exposed to the public or perhaps had been overlooked. Um, I am very much... Uh, a believer of not speaking for people. I like to pass the mic and give other people a chance to to talk for themselves. Your own work is very physical, and you write a lot about the body. How are you able to capture that in words, and what are you focusing on? Um, well, I have struggled for many years with a uh, with this body that I own, um, I, uh, it's, it's, um, if it's not something, uh, physical for me, uh, being, uh, having, uh, an invisible disability, um, having, uh, just issues with the body, um, not being satisfied with the body, not having my, my gender identity expressed in the way my body looks, um, it's just, it's a lot. Um, and over the past, uh, years I've experienced, uh, many bodily failures. Uh, I have, um, I've written ex- pretty ex- extensively about infertility. Um, and so a lot of my work, uh, focuses on the way that bodies fail us, um, and then um, uh, works that I'm, I'm currently on now, um, in 2018, I actually had to have surgery to remove cancer. So um, that was something that was a bit of a jarring experience, uh, something that I'm still uh, coping with and, and learning um, to see this body in a different way and see that my scars from surgery are just signs that I'm alive. Um and I also, after, uh, as I mentioned, uh, years of infertility and kind of coping with that, using my experience with bodily failures, uh, finally, after a year of doing in vitro, uh, I actually am pregnant now. And oh, congratulations. So, thank you. Um, my husband and I are actually expecting twins at the beginning of the year. It's pretty wild. Um <laughs> Um, so that has kind of changed how I see my body. Um, that has uh, changed the, the trajectory of my work, surviving uh, thyroid cancer and infertility and um, fibromyalgia. It is just, it's a lot to cope with. And I'm only 33 years old. So <laughs> it's, um, and so um, it, for me, writing about the body is all about me coping 
and um, turning those negative ideas into something positive, perhaps even into something that other people can relate to or feel seen in that, you know, that they're not alone, that this is something that happens to a lot of different people. While it's um, very personal, I also uh, like to think that um, these experiences are not unique to me. And I think that's uh, something that is uh, important in writing as well. I was hoping that you would read for us and help, you know, give us a little background and explicate for us, if you would. Sure. Um, So in 2017, I did this really cool project. Um, It was a group of writers and you read a horror novel to um, make found poetry. And the process called found poetry Mm -hmm. is finding selections and phrases within the book and then putting them together. Yes. So it was a large swaths of text that um, I pulled from. Um, I know Anne Rice as a writer herself, she is, she's quite problematic. Um, she has a, a lot of her older works, especially, uh, deal with some pretty outdated worldviews. Um, but for me, uh, her writing is very nostalgic, something that I grew up with, something that is a very, um, important to my formative years as a writer, as a lover of horror novels, as a person, uh, seeking out a sort of, um, queerness in writing. Uh, she, uh, for me as a teenager, she really delivered those ideas. And so that's another reason why I, um, really wanted to use her work. And so this poem is called The Procession of the Magi. I've made you the same as I. We share the same magic blood. Monks chant farewell to restraints, spellbound, a magical leap. I floated, felt cleansed, my freedom hungry for kisses. Him, dark and horrid, me, forbidden land. With this poem specifically, I composed it because of the images, because of the the feelings that it gave me. When it came to me, when I saw these these words, it it just reminded me of the way that people like me, uh, especially queer femmes, were not you know, in in public or in certain spaces, not supposed to enjoy you know, sexuality or sensuality. It's uh, something that is is for men to enjoy. Um, this is um, exposing that, yes, I can have these feelings. Yes, this is normal and natural. But also, I'm seen as something that is forbidden or something that is taboo or that I shouldn't uh, talk about these kind of ideas, that it's I- improper to do so. And I think a, a lot of my work in general really kind of reflects that idea as well. What do you find yourself working on these days? Actually, for the past year or so, I have been writing a series of um, poems in the forms of letters. Um, I, I, As I mentioned earlier, I had um, been through IVF for uh, the better part of a year, a little more than a year. I experienced infertility for 10 years. And throughout my IVF experience, I had several miscarriages. And so I have been, as a means of working through that, um, I have been writing letters in the form of, of poetry to my my embryos that failed uh, when it comes to talking about miscarriage, talking about early loss. Uh, I feel that it's not addressed enough or that people perhaps feel uh, too, too much shame or that it's too, too much of a sad thing to talk about. And for me, talking about it makes it real and makes it, uh, makes me feel that, um, you know, I'm not the only person this is happening to. This has happened to many, many other people. And to uh, just put it out there that other people are not alone as well, I think is important. Well, Casey, Renee, thank you for sharing this with me on With Good Reason. And I'm wishing you all the best of luck on the twins. It's very exciting news. <laughs> thank you.
Casey Renee Lopez teaches English at John Tyler Community College. Their most recent collections of poems are The New Gods and When Does Our Blood Become a Crucifixion? Poet and writer Lou Gallo says all writing is autobiographical. Gallo's an English professor at Radford University, and his own works reveal his life, from the musical city that's in his blood to his wife, who he calls a muse. Lou, you reveal a lot about yourself and your family in your poems. I especially love the poem 12 Songs that you wrote about your great-grandfather. His name was Jacob. Tell me about him. Jakob Serbeck, my maternal great-grandfather. I didn't know him. I did have a, a book of songs he wrote, and I realized no one ever played them, no one ever listened to them. Here's another example of, of an artist who, who gets totally forgotten. And he put all that effort into that music book, and it was just in a drawer for the past who knows how many years, a hundred at least. I just imagined him sitting down writing those songs, thinking somebody would read them or play them, and no one ever did. Would you please read for me a few lines of the poem, 12 songs, about his works? Okay, I would love to. Here it goes. I imagine the old man, though not so old at the time, desperate to preserve some token of himself for his daughters, hoping they might cherish songs inspired by and dedicated to them. But the daughters aged all too soon and could spare no idle moment to pine and dream in nostalgia. They consigned the notebook to a box that wound up in more than one attic. Until decades later, when a grandchild who hauled down some trash smeared with oily, dusty cobwebs felt touched by the quaint book of songs, she vaguely recalled Jacob's long, wild beard and stuffed the book into a drawer bulging with keepsakes. Where it remains as I, great-grandchild, root through the family history. My mother tells the story, but admits she never tried to play the tunes on our battered upright. Never enough time, she almost apologizes. At that moment, I feel weighted with obligation and move toward the piano. The phone rings. When I return, my mother has already stashed the book. She's off to the grocery, and I'm late for work. I read in an interview you gave to someone else that you once had a box of cherished Mardi Gras souvenirs that you <laughs> carefully maintained and kept just for your young daughter, knowing one day she'd cherish them as much as you. <laughs> Would you tell me what happened? <laughs> yeah, I got that box out of the attic, yeah. and it had all these Mardi Gras doodads from God, way back. And Maddie, it was, was sitting on a chair, and I pulled some out, and I said, wouldn't you like to have this? And she said, Daddy, we don't want that crap. Sell it on eBay. <laughs> <laughs> is that what this poem is all about? Probably. Think about if your great-grandfather or mother wrote a chapbook of poems, would you really read it? I tend to think maybe you wouldn't, You'd plan to, but would never get around to it. What are your thoughts about that? That it's sad. I just found the first rare book I ever bought. It's the collected works of Thomas Moore, a 19th century Irish poet. He was as famous as Sir Walter Scott in his lifetime, and he's completely forgotten. No one reads him. What a waste of energy and, and genius and why do it if it goes into oblivion? You see this with even modern poets. There's a really good poet, American poet named Alan Dugan, who used to be in the anthologies. No more. He's gone. And I think, how many were there in the past like this that no one has ever heard of, consigned to the attic, so to speak? So, yeah, it's sad. It's very sad. It's sad and overwhelming because 
how many of us can crowd onto the earth? How many lives can be remembered? How many bodies can we cram into cemeteries, right? Right. It's There's nowhere to put as much reverence and homage as we feel we should and want to pay. And basically, that's kind of what all of my poems are about and stories about the losses. And they're uncountable, they're incalculable. To me, that's tragic. And the only thing we can do to, what, rectify or ameliorate that is to laugh. And that's why a book like Samuel Beckett's Malloy, which is one of the bleakest novels ever written, but also one of the funniest, is just a great work of art because it combines both the tragic and the comic. There's another poem of yours I love called, Shuggy, when you coming to get that turkey? What is that from? And is that also about loss or more loving memory? Well, it's about my mother, who is called Shuggy. The phone rings, and it's her sister, my late Aunt Sylvia, who says, Shuggy, when are you coming to get that turkey? And I thought, that's a beautiful line. <laughs> Would you please read that for me? I will. Here it goes. Not long ago, I sat here during a break from our hospital vigil after a vein in my own father's head exploded. Spirits roared through the room like a maelstrom, and I fled outside to lean against the towering bay-leaf tree, panting, Shuggy, when you're coming? We'll have turkey soup tonight, bread pudding for dessert. Tarantulas gather at the windows. Sweet cream drips from skull sockets, cracks in the jaw. Imagine, so much blood, so few words, a few paltry secrets. Smoke rises from the wick of this candle like a wishbone. Shuggy. I noticed that a lot of your pieces mention wishbones. Why wishbones? That's a recurrent image for me. I just like wishbones. And the thought that somebody gets the short end, somebody gets the long end. And for some reason, I have an obsession with chickens because once a long time ago at the Bayou Road Indian Market in New Orleans, we went to buy a chicken and you, you picked out live chickens. You hand them to this lanky man who then ties them to a 50-gallon drum and cuts off their heads. But one of them, the one we picked, escaped and was running around the place headless. And it ran straight toward me, and it completely freaked me out. I ran out of the Indian market all the way down the street thinking the chicken was after me. I fell into a, an old lady's garden. She was sitting in a rocking chair on the front porch. I looked up. She's looking at me. She says, you got a feather in your hair. <laughs> I was just a kid. And ever since then, chickens have haunted me. And um, therefore, wishbones. Yeah. Do you miss New Orleans now? Oh, yeah. Yeah, every day. Early in the pandemic, you started a Facebook group for your students to connect and share poetry that way. The Poetry Students Jam is what you called it. I started that because we all had to go online, and I sensed in the students' poetry a real loneliness. I said, okay, let me try this. Started a poetry jam called Two Gallo Poetry Jam. It's interesting you said you noticed the students were lonely. Yeah. When the pandemic first hit, how could you see that? Through their poems. Got a lot of poems about that. And are you still seeing the effects of the pandemic oh, through yeah. the oh, poetry yeah. now? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think several of the students just completely lost it midway. Some have disappeared. Others write poems about what a tough time it's been mentally, spiritually, physically. I, too, wrote poems about the pandemic. You think it's been harder on young people, actually, than people who have lived... Longer and more fully? 
I think it's more tragic for the young people because they haven't had the chance. And look, the way it's going at this moment, raging exponentially across the country, I sometimes feel very cynical and think, this is never going to end. This may be an extinction event. Everybody in America wants to wear a happy face. And I think there's a lot of suffering. But, you know, it's have a nice day, a peachy keen ordeal in America. Now, if we were sitting in a French cafe with existentialists, we'd admit the truth and there would be no happy face. I do have moments of happiness when I go out with my dog and we rake leaves together and I throw the tennis ball and, you know, little moments like that, what what Proust called um, privileged moments. But there's that underlying drone of COVID, COVID, COVID. And then you think it didn't have to be this way. It didn't have to be this way. Louis Gallo is an English professor at Radford University. He's published several collections of poetry, including Clearing the Attic and Scherzo Furiant. Join Virginia Humanities and the University of Virginia's Karsh Institute of Democracy in Richmond, April 20th and 21st. Hear from veteran political journalist Margaret Taleff and media pioneer Evan Smith about the future of journalism and democracy. To register, Google Virginia Humanities News Summit. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Cassandra Deering and Aviva Casto are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast or to comment, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.